with us on a journey into the unknown, the unexplained, and the unbelievable. We will test your senses and challenge your beliefs. A world where science and religion clash. Or do they? You will meet real people and hear real stories, but you will not believe. You will witness strange sights and hear strange sounds, but you will not believe. This is the New England Ghost Project. Welcome to the Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. Welcome to Ghost Chronicles Next Generation. I am Ron Kolick, your host, the gatekeeper of the realm of the unknown, the unexplained, and the unbelievable New England's own Van Helsink. And with me, as usual, the blonde bombshell herself, Ann Carrigan. Hey, hey, everybody. Hope you're doing well. Getting ready for Christmas. Yep, Christmas, your favorite time of the year. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyway. <laughs> so, so uh, we have a, a, a kind of a cool show tonight because this is someone that, uh, gosh, I, I'm trying to think. It must be like 20 years, but uh, one of the first places and, and people that I was able to uh, investigate, and, and that, of course, we are talking about America Stonehenge in Salem, New Hampshire, and the owner of this pro- of this property, uh, Dennis Stone. Dennis, you there? Uh, yes, I am, Ron. Good evening. God, can, can you remember? It's been a long time, Dennis. I know. It's been a couple of decades. I was thinking about that today. Yeah, it's been quite a while. And good to hear from you again. Yeah, it was. It was. <laughs> uh, we stayed over overnight on the, on the main site, which was, was exciting. Uh, uh, Don was there. Do you remember Don? Yeah, Don actually worked for us for about 13 years, and now she's a uh, school administrator over in, uh, I think, in Timberland, in Plastow, New Hampshire, and we stay in touch. And her husband actually uh, is in the oil business. He delivers oil to our museum and to our house and to, uh, to my son's house, too. So, yeah, we stay in touch with him all the time. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah that was that's, way awesome. back, that's way back in the day. Uh, yeah, we, were, we went out. <laughs> we, we, we stayed on the, on, the, on the main site, which we did some experiments. This is way back in the early days. Uh, in fact, I think AT, AT, AT&T3, which was a – a TV station uh, on cable at one time uh, wow. came and 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 was with us as well, uh, but but that was a that was a fun time and it was it was uh, it was interesting because you had a lot of stories about the the site. First of all, uh, before we get into all that, let's let's talk about the site itself. So, uh, you are not the first generation owner of the site, correct? Right. It does go way back to uh, basically. Back into the late 1600s, when the Haverhill uh, proprietors actually controlled the land, it was called the Haverhill Peak in part of Massachusetts. And uh, sometime around 1734, actually, uh, a gentleman named Seth Patty actually bought a piece of the property that didn't include the site, but included part of the hill. And he was a shoemaker. And about 10 years later, he bought another piece of the property in 1744. And uh, that's part of the land that includes the site that we know today that you were talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and in 1750, the town of Salem was finally uh, incorporated. It was a Salem district for a while. Uh, and then it uh, probably around that time, the Patty family started building a home on top of uh, what we call the main site today. And that may have been Seth Jr., actually, the gentleman's son. And uh, my dad actually is the one that got involved with this back in the 1950s. Uh, and it was from a radio show out of Boston, um, WBZ Radio. It was a show called oh, Yankee God. Yarns. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
with uh, Alton Hall Blackington, you know, and on a Friday night in 1955, just listening to a radio, you know, and uh, <laughs> the, the, the subject was all about the site. And he only lived seven miles from here and he never heard of the place before. So it kind of blew him away. You know, it was a, probably a couple hours show. I hope we someday we can get the, uh, get that show. You know, maybe they still have the archives of that show. Um, that would and be uh, yeah, it'd be kind of cool to play a clip in our museum too, you know? Mm. And um that same week, he's at a barber shop up in Derry, New Hampshire, where he lived, you know, seven miles from the where the site is, approximately. And uh, is waiting to have his hair cut, picked up a magazine, looking at the magazine, you know, going through the pages. All of a sudden, he realizes he's looking at uh, a whole story about the same site that he just heard on uh, WBC radio a few days before. So it's quite uh-huh. a coincidence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, pretty amazing. So this pitch is there, too, so he could see what the place looked like. Uh, the uh, barber shop uh, was owned by a gentleman named Warren. Um, let's see what was his last name. Uh, Haywood, and used to race horses at Rockingham Racetrack too. Besides oh, being a barber, yeah, you know we did. Yeah, we used to go to the races there. It was part of the history of Salem for sure for almost a hundred years. Yeah. But uh, Warren, uh, you know, was cutting somebody's hair, I guess, at the moment. And my dad said, "Hey, can I keep this magazine?" And he goes, "Well, how old is it?" He goes, "It's 1952. It was a New Hampshire Profile magazine, and it had been sitting in his place for three years, I guess. <laughs> so uh, coincidentally, you know. So you know, and if that was if that magazine wasn't there, it's possible we wouldn't even be talking right now because that really." you know, triggered it for my dad to really get involved with this after seeing the photographs, the story, plus, of course, the radio show, you know. Mm-hmm. And that Saturday night, I think, there were my aunt and uncles up in Derry, the same town, playing cards with about 10 people, and he passed a magazine around to everybody, and nobody really knew what it was, you know, very typical about our site, uh, until it got to my aunt and uncle. My aunt was uh, my mom's sister, and her husband uh, they actually looked at the pictures and were kind of blown away because they said, wait a minute, we were there in the 1930s. We used to ride our bicycles down there, you know, so I know a little coincidence there, you know. So my dad's next question is, can you find the place? And back in those days, the site was not open to the public. There were no road signs, you know. It was worked on archaeologically for 20 years by then, but it was not really open to the public. People snuck up there all the time, including my aunt and uncle, as it turns out. Uh, so, <laughs> so the next day they went out on a Sunday, I guess. And I was about a year and a half old. And my, I only had one cousin at the time. And both of us are about, he's just about six months older than I am. So we stayed with grandparents and my, uh, and the forum went driving all around North Salem, New Hampshire, trying to find this place, you know, and they finally saw a road that kind of looked familiar to my aunt and uncle and took a chance, parked the car, walked about a half a mile up into the woods on this old road and and there was a site you know and they had a chain link fence all around it that you might remember ron you know that yeah fence it actually goes back to 1937 it's still in remarkable shape you know <laughs> i guess they can build them well if they were to build something well they can build it and i painted it a few times but it's wow it's still there <laughs> wow so my dad my dad climbed under it you know because there's barbed wire on top and it's still there too I was put up by the first researcher to protect the site from, you know, vandals and from people taking artifacts away and so forth. He put it up in 1937. So my dad climbed under it. Basically, they were all trespassing. And he <laughs> wandered around the site for quite a while by himself. The others didn't want to climb under the fence, you know. So when he finally came out after quite a while, he, hey, how do you, what do you think? He goes, wow, this place is amazing. I've never seen anything like this, you know. And they were discussing it. And then he said something about, I would love to get involved with the research study, maybe you know, open it to the public as a, an attraction museum. And of course my mom's reaction was you got rocks in your head. You know? So <laughs> I think that was her comment, you know, and he, and he definitely had. And, uh, but we opened it in 1958, actually, after three years of working it out with the, uh, 
with the owner. His name is Malcolm Pearson. And uh, so we opened it up almost 65 years ago. I think it will be the ne- summer solstice next year in 2023 will be our 65th year. Wow. Uh, wow. That we, yeah, kind of a, yeah, kind of an important uh, anniversary coming up, you know, so, but I'm the second generation. And then my son, Kelsey, he's involved, although he's a full-time engineer, like my dad was, he was, my dad was an AT&T Bell Labs. Engineer. He was young when I was there. My dad? Yeah. No, your son, your son. Oh, Kelsey was very young. Yeah, he was born yeah. in 89. So he was about 10 years or 11 years old when you saw him. Now he's uh, 33. Yeah. And he wow. went into engineering for, just like my dad did, he went into engineering, you know, and he's working for Raytheon now. But oh, okay. um, and he, he worked for Dean Kamen, you know, DECA. He worked for him for a yeah. few years and had some other L3 jobs. So he's an engineer. My dad was an engineer, you know, and I was, because I went in the airline, so we all worked full time and wife was at Chrysler financial for many years and running the place on the side too. So, but it's our passion and love, you know, so it is a family affair. <laughs> that's, that's amazing that you could, you could do that part time, not even as a full time, you know, maintain a full time job too. That's yeah, we all did basically. Yeah. Now we retired, retired from the airline sick from, I worked at American at the end of my career for 17 years. I flew for them. So I retired six years ago. Now everybody's like, uh, oh, you're retiring. He says, I don't know if I'm retiring or not. And now it's like a seven day a week you yeah. know, job. <laughs> so uh, I don't know about the retirement. I even had a cousin that's that cousin I mentioned uh, in the story there. And when I told him I was retiring from America, he was kind of upset. You know, he thought he wanted to retire before me. And I said, Do you really think I'm going to retire when I'm working at the museum? <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know I, I never, I and mean, we haven't. We're just full time there, you know. So. <laughs> <laughs> But we love it, you know, so it's not too bad. <laughs> if no one's ever been there, you've got to see it. I mean, they do have a nice visitor center. Uh, you know, you still have the, uh, the what, alpacas? Or, no, wait, uh, yeah, good memory. Alpacas, good memory. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We got those in 2002, and Rocky has been with us since the beginning. He's 22 now. He's a senior oh, yeah. citizen alpaca. Oh, and uh, we love him to death. But, uh, yeah, we got six of them right now. And the next one is Ashley. She came in 2003. And she had a, a son named Barney, and Barney's been with us uh, since 20, uh, when was he born? Barney was born in 07, so he's 15 years old. And we have oh, a couple wow. of younger ones. Yeah. yeah, we love them. And, uh, you know, the part of the North American camel family. So we tell a little bit of history, you know, how these animals' ancestors were from North America. In fact, all the camels in the world, you know, were here for 45 million years, up to about 8,000 years ago. And this is part of that you know, that's part of the same family. So they're kind of back home again, you know, after all these years, you know, so they're a lot of fun. We love them, you know, and we're going to be snowshoeing soon and we sell their fiber. You know, we have yarns, the skeins of yarn. Well, we shear them every year. We send it to a mill. Yeah. And then we put their pictures on it made by Barney or Rocky or Ashley. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. You know, it's kind of, kind of homegrown if you will. And yeah, it's nice cool. for making clothes. <laughs> yeah, they have little pictures on the website of all the alpacas. Mm-hmm. They're all mm. different. Every single one. Yeah. They're so cute. I remember mm-hmm. when yep. we were there. We were there in 2015, Ron. That's how long ago. Wow. Yeah. And wow. Um, I've been like wow. I said, I've been there for yeah about 20 years, different yeah. at different times. I've yeah. I've gone back several times to. Oh. That's uh, what the only time I had been there, and it was yeah. it was pretty cool. And uh, they had just shaved uh, a couple of the alpacas, and it looked so funny because yeah. they have these <laughs> they big do. giant heads and they do. and, and yeah. no fur on the rest of their body. <laughs> right? Yeah, they they look so funny right now. They look like 
a jeer pet because the fur is yeah. the fibers really <laughs> yeah, coming. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and then by June, they'll look really skinny with really long necks, you know, with the heads way up, you know. But um, yeah, they're, they're cute any time of year. But yeah, when you shear them, they look so different, you know, and <laughs> fresh cut, you know. Yeah. <laughs> So, so for people who aren't familiar with American Stonehenge, or uh, as, as I remember it growing up, uh, Mystery Hill. Uh, right, what are, right. Give, yep. us, give us a, a little, uh, well, what are the main, you know, uh, attractions here? What, what, what are the particular sites that uh, is up there that people can go and see and, and, and so forth? Well, yeah, well, we're located in, the, as I mentioned, North Salem, New Hampshire, about 40 miles north of Boston. And if they're coming from, you know, down Route 93 or up Route 93 uh, or Exit 3, and um, we're open every day of the year except for Thanksgiving and Christmas, Christmas and the occasional blizzard, of course, you know. <laughs> so we're year-round open, and uh, we'll be snowshoeing very shortly, I'm sure. It sounds like some snow's coming. Um, but... Um, if they go to our website, they can actually do a, a complete virtual tour of the site. The website has pictures and information, but there is where you can click on, and it's a free app download. Uh, it's a mobile app download, and you can go uh, structure or feature by feature and do a complete virtual tour of the entire property like you would if you were there. Uh, you can do it in your easy boy or lazy boy anywhere in the world, but when you come to our site and you use that app, it actually talks to you as pictures and text as you're walking along, really? um, which is kind of cool. Yeah. So they can get a really good idea from the website pictures. And there's a 12 minute video presentation we show in our theater. That's also available free online to look at. And then they can also buy tickets at a discount too. not just trying to do a sales, but everything's right there for you, including that free app download. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to come. Maybe you're in Hawaii and you can't get there, you know, for years or ever, you can right. actually do a complete tour and see, See everything you would if you were there. Of course, it's much nicer to use the app while you're walking around too. You know, it's it's kind of sure. nice. You know, we have a four-page map that you might remember. We've been using that map. I still the have same it. map going. <laughs> oh, you still do? Yeah, they go back. Of course, I almost do. to. I think 1960 is the first time we used that kind of thing, and by 1970, the, what you see today has been updated, but it's more along that format, I think, from about 52 years ago. So we still use the maps, and people, maybe half the people use the app and half the people use the map, and I say, well, take a map anyway in case your phone dies, which happens up there quite a bit anyway. So <laughs> so, so what are the key attractions up there? I mean, what, what particular yeah. sites? Uh, yeah, the site we think is a ceremonial site. About 100, it's about 110 acres almost, and has walls and structures all over the hilltop. But the main site is about one acre, where most, but not all, the stone ruins are located. Uh, some of the structures kind of look like what you see on the Flintstones, you know, with stone roofs and <laughs> stone walls and everything. But we think the site's a ceremonial site, not like bedrock where people live. It's a place where people worship. And it's on a hill about 360 feet above sea level, so it's built up higher, like a lot of ancient sites are. Um, and there's different structures like the Oracle Chamber. You can see that again on our website. It's an amazing structure. It has like five closets. It has a uh, like an eight foot, what we call the bed. It's a horizontal hole they built in the wall, and you can actually lay in there. And it actually has a window. You can actually look out into the structure if you were laying in there. It has a chimney that used to have two stone louvers. Uh, back in 1958-59, somebody stole them, but we still have the photographs of the Lewis to adjust the draft if you were to build a fire inside this chamber. And it has um, a running deer carving, an arrow carving in it. 
Um, it's about 30 feet long, north and south, and it runs east and west. It's kind of shaped like the letter Y. If you could look down uh, and see what the structure looked like without the roof on it, you know, like with x-ray vision, it's kind of a letter Y shape to the whole thing. It used to be called the Y cabin, as a matter of fact. It has a horizontal tube that goes six feet through the wall, and it comes out underneath what we call the sacrificial table. And it suggested that this tube is not for smoke or anything like that, that it was used for actually an oracle to speak, and the voice will come out under the table, and it works, you know. And if you're standing above the table, hear a voice, you think during a ceremony, maybe a spirit or a god or goddess is speaking to you, you know, and giving you instructions or wisdom or whatever. You know, I've been to Oracle in Delphi, too. You know, we went over to Greece. But the closest thing I saw, we went to Malta 25 years ago, and I was talking to the guide there, and they had holes in the walls in some of the chambers. I said, what are these holes for? He goes, so the oracle could speak through these holes, you know? Kind of the same idea, ah. I think, the oracle tube was. Yeah, you know? So Malta really impressed me like that, you know? So the uh, thing that's coming up now is, is some, the winter solstice alignment. It'll be next Wednesday. We'll be open for the sunrise. That'll be on our website. And we close after sunset for this, you know, watch the sun come down over the stone. It's pretty cool. We opened up that clearing in 1965. We took the first photographs in 1967. And we'll be celebrating it next Wednesday, hopefully, if the weather's good. Uh, So that's our next big event. Uh, We have 57 alignments for the sun, the moon, and stars that we know of today. So it's a very astronomically, I guess, orientated kind of site. and that was probably part of the whole ceremony up there during maybe weddings and funerals or some other events like the solstices, equinoxes. People would gather up there and perhaps, you know, that's what I thought is, you know, we can't really prove it all, but right. that's what we think it was used for. So since you've been there, Ron, in 2016, when I retired, we found what we believe are serpent walls. These are walls oh. that look like a snake. They have a head, really? a body, and a tail. Oh, my God. I found my first... I don't know if you've heard of those before, but I never had them until 2016. I had no idea that I knew Serpent Mound out in Ohio. I used to fly out right. that way all the time. You know, yep. I never knew that they built walls looking like serpents. I um, wasn't aware <clears> of that either. Uh, yeah, quite a shock to us actually in 2016. I found my first one, and then a couple more later in the spring. You know, well, uh, there, there's there's a little bit of controversy on the site too because when the the site was first there. The, the, some of the stones were taken out for and used by uh, uh, builders and so forth. And so, is there been any, you know, I mean, as far as restoration and so forth, uh, can you tell tell how much damage was done to the, the original site from this original pilfering? Yeah, that was during the Patty era. Probably, uh, I mentioned Seth, and then his son uh, Seth Jr possibly building a house there sometime after 1750. And these were guys who were all shoemakers, or five generations of shoemakers. And then the grandson, Jonathan, is the one that got the property in 1801 on Christmas Eve from his mom. And uh, she, uh, her name was Susan Kohler. She actually, uh, she, her husband died in 1788, and she married a cousin named Corliss. So she went from a patty to being a Corliss. But uh, the house that might have been built after 1750 might have sent sat vacant for a couple of years because 1788, uh, Jonathan's dad died from injuries from the Revolutionary War. He got sick after the war and he never quite recovered. So when he passed away in 1788 uh, until 1801, we're not sure who used the house because the mother moved to her, was a cousin she married actually, like a second or third cousin named Corliss. 
So he got the house on Christmas Eve, moved the family there in 1802, and he died in 1849. Sometime in that in that era, is, we believe, is when people were coming up taking stones, and he was a tax collector besides being a shoemaker. Oh, wow. And he knew the tax laws. And there was a quarry tax. So if you quarried the rock right out of the bedrock, you'd have to pay a tax. But the rocks were already just freely sitting on the ground. You didn't pay a tax. Oh, so wow. some of the stones were taken away, and they were taken down the hill for local projects. And it's estimated anywhere from a quarter to maybe a third of the site was taken away. You can see the modern drill marks. They used a star drill, and they kept turning it as they hit it. They made these round holes. And then they used a plug-in feather, and then they used a sledgehammer, and they would split the stones. And we actually found one of the toolkits, the plug-in feather toolkit, was found oh, wow. back in back about 80 years ago by Mr. Goodwin, the first archaeologist. It's on display. You can see it today when you come into a... Mm. So, yeah, damage was done in the 18, possibly 40s. And then by 1863, um, the grand, the grandson of Jonathan, actually, his name was George. He sold the property to a Nathaniel H. Paul, who had a sawmill down the street at Cowbell Corner. It was a big building with a cowbell, and that's how the, the term <laughs> Cowbell Corner. That's so cool. Yeah, kind of famous, you know, in those days, I guess. <laughs> well, he bought the property, and he did lumbering up there, you know. So they pulled the tree. It was in the in the area was basically on maps and everything as a woodlot, so it was used for that kind of purpose, not for farming as we think of it, or even where animals grazed. They could have had a few because we have his tax records from Jonathan Patty, but but that time period, yeah. Uh, so it changed hands, and then it fell back into the Patty family later on, around just before 1900, and then um, uh, Fred Dustin actually ended up with the land. The Dustin family is pretty well known. Uh, um, if you know the Dustins, uh, what was her name? She was the one that was um, involved. Hannah Dustin, the famous Hannah oh, Dustin. Oh, yeah, Hannah Dustin, yeah. Yep. That's the same family. And they were actually related to the Patties. <laughs> it's a small oh, world, wow. right? Yeah. Yeah, and so Hannah Dustin's part of that family, too. Um, so it goes to the Dustin family, and that's who basically uh, William Goodwin eventually bought the property from in 1936. And Goodwin... Um, actually photographed the site in 36 before he bought the land. Oh, wow. His photographer was Malcolm Pearson. He was a professional photographer. Mm -hmm. And Malcolm took uh, thousands of photographs. We have them today. Some have never been turned into prints. They're negatives. Some are glass slides, some are plastic slides, and some are prints. So fortunately, you have a photographic record started in 36. But some people say we don't know what Goodwin did. We do know what Goodwin did. In fact, uh, the Haverhill Gazette has 1935 picture of the whole site with a uh, Reverend Ward standing in the patty area looking at the background and you could see it a year before Goodwin ever showed up on the property and we found four photographs from 1920 over about 102 years ago there were four photographs taken by somebody and they coded them it shows the sacrificial table before all the dirt was removed from around it the oracle oh, wow. chamber it shows the patty area where the house once sat we think the house was actually taken away and it sits across the street from where our parking lot entrance is today, because that's in that's where the Patty family in 1907 history of Salem. There's a Patty standing in front of that house on Haver Road. Now oh, we think oh. the house is and right across the street is a road that goes right up to the main site. We think the house was actually taken apart, brought oh. down, and there's the Patty family standing there uh, with all the names and everything. And that was 1907 um, history of Salem. I have three copies. It's about a four-inch book. It's really thick. Uh, quite a bit about the hill. So we have a lot of, uh, we actually have a timeline going back to the Ice Age all the way through the, 
you know, when Native, two Native Americans sold the property for three pounds and so many shillings uh, oh. and it, to the Havel proprietors and everything, it, all of that's recorded. I think that was 1672. I might be wrong on that date, 1670-ish, you know. And then it becomes part of the Havel Peak, and then eventually it becomes part of New Hampshire in 1740, 1741, New Hampshire, Mass. Although New Hampshire wasn't really a state then until 1788. They actually did New Hampshire, I guess, land grant. There was a fight between that and the Man- uh, Massachusetts Bay Colony, if I'm not yeah, mistaken. Yeah, we owned it. We owned it. Yeah. You did. You did. You actually did. Yeah, we were part of you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but after 1741, it went to uh, become the Salem District of New- what we call New Hampshire today, I guess, you know, so... Lots of history about the place, but you're right. Yeah, there was damage done to the site. Mr. Goodwin did repairs. We had the photographs of him repairing, cleaning up the site, the debris. Oh, wow. He said uh, if a rock came from within three feet up a wall, he would he'd have his crew put it back on top of the wall. And basically, that's pretty much what you can see happening in the photographs, you know? Wow. No, I, I remember so, so much from the, that first thing. I don't know how much of it changed, how much has you know, been oh, coming up to the break. But I remember there was there was some of the theories that the site was originally used by Phoenicians or perhaps uh, Irish monks. And, and there was all kinds of stories regarding the, the, the site and, and what it was used for. Exactly. Those stories are still around today, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah they've been around for a long time. Yeah. I mean, yeah. who are the builders is still a is it still a million dollar question. I will say before the break, though, there's about 800 different sites we've located over the years from Quebec, Ontario, all the way down to Virginia. And there are resemblances between our site and those sites. So this is not a unique site by itself, <laughs> but it is kind of the Reader's Digest version on 110 acres. Usually the sites are spread <laughs> out over a big area, you know, so. All right, <laughs> we have to take a break right now. You're listening to Ghost Chronicles Next Generation with Ann Carrigan and Ron Kolick right here on TojiNet. Our special guest today is the owner of uh, America Stonehenge, a.k.a. Mystery Hill, uh, back in my day, uh, Dennis Stone. And uh, we're brought to you by Circles of Wisdom, 386 Merrimack Street, Lewin, Massachusetts, the Gallant Messier Family Law Group, 15 High Street, North Andover, Massachusetts, and our very good friends on Ghost Chronicles Radio on Patreon. Uh, you can become a supporter of the show, uh, just like you can on PBS. Uh, so uh, we'll be right back the following messages do you have a paranormal event book or something else you want people to know about then why not advertise it on ghost chronicles radio with over 150,000 downloads a month get your message out to an audience that's interested in the subject we have a plan at a cost that fits your needs for more information contact ron kolick at any ghost project at comcast.net or call 978-455-6678 hello Hello, can you hear me? My name is Harry Price. I am speaking to you via the medium of the Ghost Box. Many of you will know I carried out the first live radio broadcast from Haunted House way back in 1936 for the BBC. Now, thanks to the wonders of modern technology, I am still able to keep abreast of 21st century ghost hunting by listening to Ghost Chronicles International on Togginet, Para-X Radio, The Ghost Channel, and even on something called a podcast. 
two splendid chaps host it. One is an American who calls himself New England's own Van Helsing, although I have discovered his real name is Ron Kolek. The other is Stephen Parsons, and he's a paranormal scientist. Well, mustache, I'm required elsewhere on something called a K2. But don't forget, I'll be listening in every Tuesday from 8 o'clock in Great Britain and 3 o'clock on the American Eastern Seaboard. I trust you will join me there. And welcome back to Ghost Chronicles Next Generation with Ron and Ann and our very special guest this evening, Dennis Stone, the owner of America's Stonehenge. We're back. We are. <laughs> Dennis, you still with us? I am still with you. Can you hear me? You ah, yeah, so. yeah. You were just so yeah. quiet there. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> Meditating. <laughs> now, you, you, have, you mentioned that you have an event coming up, the winter solstice, uh, which is, when, when is it, Dennis, again? Yeah, it's next Wednesday, um, uh, be the 21st this year. It moves around a little bit each year, you know, right. the 20th, 21st, but it's Wednesday, and hopefully the weather's uh, going to cooperate. And and people will be allowed on the site at that time, too, as well, right? Yeah, exactly, Ron. Yeah, exactly. We open, uh, we've been doing that since the 1970s, actually, opening up for these events. And uh, the, we do the four seasons, they're called the quarter days, but we also have the cross-quarter days, like May 1st, August 1st, November 1st, and February 1st. And uh, a couple of those actually fit within our normal hours. Right now, we're open from 9 in the morning till 4, last admissions at 3, because it gets stocked. In the summertime, we go to 5 o'clock. But yeah, we put it on our website, Facebook and Instagram, uh, what we're going to be doing. But on Sunday, they're going to have a celebration. Katja has been with us for almost 30 years. She's from Holland originally. She's been doing Mm -hmm. celebrations for about 30 years there. And she's going to do it Sunday. Uh, Finds more people can attend it because it's not a work day. Uh, But we are open Wednesday morning uh, and we'll be open for the sunset in the evening. And uh, we'll keep our fingers crossed for uh, nice, clear skies. You know, I, I, I remember, oh, God, this is this is a while back again. Uh, and you have a structure on the property, I, I assume it's still there, called the Watch House? Uh, that's correct, yep. Yes. Yeah, and uh, one day in February, I believe it was February, it could have been January, like I said, it was a long time ago. I went there with uh, early in the morning with uh, Professor McLeod from the University of Lowell. I don't know if you remember him. Oh, yes. Yes, we do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because yeah, he had a theory about that that watch house. He said that if you went in there on the, the sunrise that uh, or just before the sunrise, you were able to see the constellations being projected on the, on the one of the walls in there. So uh, we we tracked down in the middle. Yeah, well, early morning, I guess it was. And uh, we went there. Uh, unfortunately, it was an overcast day, so we didn't have much luck. But uh, that was one of his theories. He had done a lot of research on on the on the site. He was, uh, I believe, he had uh, Native American blood too in, a, in it as well. Oh, did he? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he was. Quite well, you a- know, that's you brought up that structure. That's one of what we think of fourteen possible serpentine walls. The boulder, mm-hmm. actually, when you get back, it looks like the head of a serpent. 
Oh, wow. The wall behind it, we didn't realize, but the wall behind it, although we were on to it in the 70s, there is a November 1st cross-quarter Samhain by the ancient Celts, but it's also a Native American. Because I went to Mesa Verde in 1990, we were just there three years ago. They do have the four, uh, not only the four seasons, but the days in between, the cross-quarter days in Mesa Verde. I was kind of shocked in 1990, but we went back three years ago, and it's like, oh, yeah. So that that might be the head of a boulder is the serpent. We got the LIDAR of that, handheld LIDAR. It's amazing. I can try to send you those images if I get your phone. I can send them to your phone, you know. I wish I had before the show so you could actually look at them as we're speaking. Mm -hmm. But the guy did 15 acres. He had a $50,000 handheld uh, LIDAR, and you can see down Mm -hmm. to a centimeter. Strips out the trees. It spent 600 hours processing the data. And he lives in Connecticut, so he's doing sites all over the Northeast, but he's a landscape architect with a master's degree. He just got the LIDAR about two and a half years ago. And we had airborne light out. It was very fuzzy and blurry. This can see, again, down to a, about a centimeter. So it's very high resolution oh, and wow. a very expensive piece of equipment. Yeah. But that serpentine walls look amazing when you see them. We have linear ones. We have rectilinear, you know, 90-degree heads or tails. Mm-hmm. We have S-shaped ones. But the watch house actually goes behind the boulder. It undulates up and down, up and down. Or we could never see that because of the trees and the brush, but it's now clear. It goes around 2,550 feet counterclockwise, touches every astronomical uh, backsite. I should say foresight. That's a stone you look off in the distance, like the winter mm-hmm. solstice sunset. It comes around, and it comes right back in front of what would be considered its face or the face of the, the serpent, the boulder. It does one more hump just before that, right near the entrance. You probably have looked at that crescent-shaped wall, <laughs> how it goes up, kind of curved. And it comes to a 90-degree pointed tail pointing at you when you're standing there looking at the watch at the watch house. It might be the Ouroboros because it looks like it could be nibbling on its tail. Usually the tail's in the <laughs> mouth for an Ouroboros, but it uh-huh. might be nibbling on it. And it's like, wow. Now, the sunlight you mentioned, uh, when Hans Holter wrote the book on his 1992 called Long Before Columbus, he had been coming up for 22 years by then. And he wow. did Lennon Nimoy's show. He actually produced Lennon Nimoy's show on us in 1976. Huh. Um, I'm still, fr- and they did a show on us two years ago in the Holtz Files, which was on Travel Channel, and they filmed yep. us all week with David Schrader. But I met Alexander, his daughter, for the first time, even though her dad was coming up and down, up you know, our site from New York City many, many times in the 70s and wrote the book. She had never been there. He kind of kept his two uh, daughters away from the place, I guess, you know, and I finally met her. She came up for the show. But, um, but that chamber actually is a multifunctional chamber. The head of that rock is a February 1st cross quarter. And it's also part of the lunar 18 and a half year cycle. So in 2035, the lunar minor standstill moonrise, we should now be able to see it because we've been doing a two year uh, thinning of the entire 106. Uh, we got about 106 acres. It's been all thinned by a licensed forester with a crew. Really? They opened up all the avenues. That's incredible. Yeah, they did in the winter. Yeah, it's amazing. He did it in the winter months when the ground was frozen, and they also avoided hitting walls and structures. And they wanted to uh, bring trees away from the walls because they uproot and cause damage. They fall on structures. So he mm-hmm. wanted the whole hilltop thin. And the, now we got a very healthy forest. We have more animals than we've ever seen up there. The wildlife has gone crazy in the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. And um, that that now you can actually watch the sun rise in the morning. And back in 1992, Barbara Hancloud who did the forward in his book long before Columbus suggested that the back wall has a quartzite stone. It's very, very white in color in the back wall. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And maybe you were referring to that. I'm not sure. Yeah, I think but I other was, pe- yeah, because I remember February 1st as, as the date. Yeah, so that, yeah. That's, Isn't that that's cold? Yeah. Yeah. It was cold. Well, what we <laughs> saw, my, a friend from Texas came up, and she's touring with Scott Walters. But in 2019, she came up. She, was, she came up. She visited. She had Sunseeker in her phone. And she went into the chamber. She goes, Sunseeker app on her phone. And I was going to put on my phone, too, but she had it already on there. And she took courses in astronomy at college, and she was digging in Mexico, she was taking archaeology in college, too. But she went inside, and she aimed her sunseeker out. She goes, it's going to be an equinox, spring or fall, sunrise, and the sun's going to go and hit the stone back here and illuminate it. Wow. Well, the trees, hadn't been, the trees weren't cleared in 2019. It started in the, uh, in the spring. We started that in the winter of 19, uh, 2019 and 20. Then they pulled all the equipment out of here, and then they brought it back a year later, and they finished it. Now the sunlight can go into the chamber and we have that all on film. It not only illuminates about eight o'clock in the morning inside that chamber, the stone, but it actually frames it because of the shape of the shape of the entrance of that structure was designed. So it casts a shadow and light illumination. It it actually frames that stone on the top of it. And the shadow goes down the left side of it. It looks like it's a frame right around the stone. And what we think it represents is the fertilization. And that's an egg with the sun, the rays, and then it would be like the womb is that chamber. Um, So we have this structure that it's amazing. It's an illumination. And that same morning out in Colorado, there are two caves, one called the Pathfinder Cave. The other one's called the Crack Creek Cave. I only found out about these a couple of years ago. That same morning, there's S-shaped petroglyphs inside the caves made by man. And the sunlight goes in and it splits the serpent with a shadow light in both caves. And they're separated by several miles apart. At Chaco Canyon, which we were at just a couple of years ago, they have the sun dagger. You know, one dagger for the summer solstice, two daggers of light coming down for the winter around the spiral, which is nine, a little over nine. And that's half the lunar cycle, they say. That's what they think that is. But on the equinox, there's a serpent carving like those other two caves, and it is split by a shadow and light right down the center of the serpent as a kind of like an S-shape. And there's one more cave in Colorado called the um, Mojave North. It's the same kind of setup with a natural cave, slightly modified in petroglyphs, and one of them's a serpent. And on that same morning that we're watching this big serpent, you know, with the sunlight going into what could be the womb, uh, that in California is being lit and split right in half by the shadow and light. And we've been to a chicken eater in Mexico. And on that same morning, Kukulkan goes down the staircase in 91 steps, a quarter of a yep. year, the shadow and light. So if we could get it, if I could afford a jet, I could fly us all around the country right <laughs> after our event. We could fly you out West and we could continue right out to California. I, I think we might miss the one in Mexico. Maybe we could go to Mexico first and hit the others. I'm not sure. We'd have to look at how that works out on the time. <laughs> yeah. But if we could see them all, there's something with serpent and equinox going on at many Wouldn't of these sites. Be? Wouldn't that be? So it's something to keep yeah. them. I don't know. Imagine <laughs> if you could just simultaneously have people at all these spots and have them lined up next to each other. Live, uh, Facebook Live or something, you know? Yes. Yeah, them, them up. That's yeah. a great yeah. idea. That's a wonderful idea. I'd still like to go to these, but yeah, that'd be a wonderful idea, you know? And uh, so we might have the biggest serpent wall. We don't know. It's 2,550 feet. We have GPSed it. It's on that LIDAR. And um, the Great Serpent wall, uh, Mound in Ohio is has the solstices and equinoxes, and it's about 1,350 feet long. And it's amazing. 
Um, but ours is about twice as long as that. And it goes in a big loop around. It comes right back again in front of its, it looks like the Ouroboros to me from what I've seen and you know, the s- symbology of that, you know, we don't know for sure. Cause we can't talk to the builders, unfortunately. Right. <laughs> well, right? You know, you just got to get the right people to do that, you know? And, oh, and definitely. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Imagine but, that, um, that had no idea that it was there all these years. I well, mean, right. that's, that's mind blowing. But my dad, my dad, he died in 09 and didn't know anything. In the spring of 2016, I found my first one. It was 27 feet long. It's a, a road that went over to where my dad lived. As a matter of fact, my dad died in 09. He built the house here in 1990. So I was just driving on my ATV. It was still all woods out there. Now it's all thinned out, of course. But I saw this wall and I've been looking at it for years, but the sunlight hit it just right. And it looked like mm-hmm. a head that fell off the front of it. It tapered down. And when I walked over to it, I got off my ATV and walked over about 70 feet. I'm looking at it. I'm like, oh God, it's on the ridge of bedrock. It tapers down to a flat stone that looks like, I thought a rattlesnake, you know? Mm-hmm. And I'm like looking at it going, I think I got a serpent here, but I had no frame wow. of reference. So I found a few more and Scott Walters and a whole bunch of like Alan Butler from England. He's been on History Channel. They all were at our site probably May of that year. And I started showing them some of the uh, few serpent walls that I had found. Kind of blew them away. And I said, I think you're onto something here. Uh, we went to a New England Antiquities meeting in Groton, Connecticut in 2017. And I picked up a book before it was between speakers. And I looked at it. It was called Ceremonial Stonework by Markham Starr. And on the back cover, 8,000 structures, 25 categories of structures. And I thought it covered a whole Northeast. And then I realized it was just a town in North Stonington, Connecticut. And he had been living there for 30 years. And he wrote this book. He writes for Yankee. He's a photographer, writer, and writes about New England fishing. But he finally put this book together and said, I don't think these things are farmer's walls. And in that book, I, as I was going through it, I saw my first serpent wall as I get to that section, one of the 25 categories. And that town has something like 400 serpent walls. They're from 30 feet up to 300 feet. The average is 80. Again, linear, rectilinear, curvilinear, and some loop around. And I said, that's what we have at our site. And I met his wife after he did his PowerPoint presentation because she was so busy and she was wonderful. And I invited him up to come and see. And I hit, they had already been at our site one time, long time ago, I guess. So they did take up my offer and they did come up and I get to meet him and talk to him and his book is amazing, and, and uh, everybody, I have it as my Bible on the counter, and I start showing people. But <laughs> you, you know when he finished, yeah, go ahead. It's, you you got to see his book, but after he spoke, a lady from Colorado with her two male, male colleagues did it by Skype. He's just been in that area, too, in that whole area up between the South Dakota and through Nebraska into that area, heading back to Denver. She spoke about a couple uh, counties east of Denver. It's very, again, very flat. She starts showing her stonework out there. She's got cons and chambered cons and mm. linear cons and con fields, just like Mark, Mark Starr had shown in Connecticut, in North Stonington. And then she gets into these walls shaped like the letter D. And we have one at our site on the south side of our site on the back map of our tour guide map. You can see it. I noticed it in 1977 when I did my diorama that's still in the building, the big model. Mm-hmm. It looks like a letter D. And that was 45 years ago. She's got those walls there, and then she starts showing her serpentine walls there, and they look just like what uh, Mark had shown, and they look like what we have at our site, all the way out in Colorado. Yeah, uh, I mean, that's the amazing thing, Dennis, is that, <laughs> you know, people think that this is a, a, a one-off thing, but there are stone structures all throughout uh, the country. Um, there is, you know, we, yeah. We, we, yeah. Looked, we went and investigated one uh, Turtle Mound in Andover. I don't know if you're familiar with that. You must be. 
Yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, I mean, and and that uh, has correlation to uh, American Stonehenge as, as well. But there are, are very different structures everywhere. We have a good friend, uh, and what's his name? The the guy that does all it. Derek Gunn. Game. Derek Gunn, who is is does that? He, oh, Derek. Yeah, I know Derek. Yeah, great guy. Yeah, he comes up every now and then. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> would, yeah, he's I a wonderful have guy. No yeah. doubt that you did not know. <laughs> Yeah, he's been up for about 30 years, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's so much, you know, out there that that people don't even realize, and it's right in their backyard. It's literally in Turtle Mound, McCarthy's backyard. (laughs) But uh, (laughs) those shapes, like the turtle, one of the chambers at our site that you've seen and we've been looking at since the 1950s when we got the family got involved with it, and Goodwin knew it back in the 30s is a south-facing chamber called the lilac chamber because there's lilacs oh, yeah. on the roof. And this, well, the story is maybe Miss Patty, Mrs. Patty planted. We know, it's just a story. Maybe it happened, too. Uh, people have been telling me that that thing looks like a turtle, you know. And I went up in, I looked at it so many times, and I'm looking at it, you know, walking around and going, I'm not sure what they're talking about. Are they talking about a carving of a turtle? They talk about the shape of the structure? Well, with the forestry thing, it really opened up the whole hill. There's much more light going oh, in there. And uh. back in July, I walked with my... We live on one side on you know of the hill. We bought two right. acres separate from the property in 1985. Built the house in '86, so I walk up with my pups every night. Little security, you know, patrol, and just you know, mm-hmm. we, I love being up there anyway, you know. And I'm, you know, I have my phone, uh, and I, I'm gonna take some pictures of the site because it's overcast, no shadows, you know. So I took some nice photographs, and I and I use them for radio shows and stuff like that too. And I, you know, I needed some new ones. When I got to that structure, I backed up to the chain link fence, and I got a good kind of. I'm looking at it going, oh, my God, I can see what these people are saying. The whole thing is actually shaped like a turtle. And I will have to send you that picture, too, because everybody looks at it, including a a skeptic, doctor of archaeology from uh, University of Connecticut, who's actually working on the Gunji Womp site now for 14 months. The state of Connecticut bought the Gunji Womp site, 250 acres. And that's another site, as you mentioned, they're all over the place. And that site was written about in 1654. John Pynchon wrote to Governor Winthrop and said, what is this thing back 368 years ago? So if these were all built by our forefathers, how come they're asking that question, you know, way back then? But mm-hmm. the state owns it now, and I think they might be doing something with opening it. So this uh, this Dr. McBride from the university has been working on it. I think his attitude has changed. He's main, mainstream. And the mainstream generally says no ancient ruins in the Northeast. You know, everything's got to be built by farmers, you know. Oh, so yeah, he came yeah. to our site, and I was with him on a tour with the former vice president of NERA, who's from Connecticut, too. And we had a Native American from Mexico with us, too. It's very, very interesting. And the Native American's girlfriend. So we're all walking around, and I got back, and I said, do you see a effigy here, an image? He goes, looking at it, he goes, uh, I think I do. I said, well, some people claim this is a turtle shape. And he goes, I can see that. And I said, isn't that interesting? Because turtle was big, you know, with a lot of ancient cultures, too. Mm-hmm. So that's right, a exactly. discovery of about maybe four months ago, although some of our customers years ago said, you've got a turtle there. And I could never see it. You know, I was just too close to the structure. I had to back up about 40, uh, 30 feet, maybe. And there it is. You can see the whole image of it. And when I send you the picture, you can check it out, you know. Yeah, I'll have to turn to the site too, because this is all in, very interesting. Oh, come back up, yeah. About. Both of you come up, yeah. yeah. Both of you, yeah. yeah all invited. That's right in my neck of the woods. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so close. I, one thing I was, one thing I uh, was intrigued about is is that the Turtle Mound site uh, supposedly has a grave on it, and yet no graves have ever been found on uh, American Stonehenge, right? Yeah, the the site. 
some of the chambers do look like the V help reminds me of the wedge tombs we saw in Ireland. They're shaped like the letter V kind of. Some have a flat back wall. My dad and I were there 40 years ago this coming year, actually. We spent the whole week in Ireland. And there's something like 2,000 megalithic sites with the New Grange, Nelf, and all those. But we saw the wedge tomb, and they have several of them. And one of them, I, we, I took a photograph, looks just like our structure. There was another one with a roof missing. Somebody actually stole the roof slabs off of oh, it. Oh, no. They all, but they always stay yeah. southwest. And our V-hut is the only structure on the site that doesn't face north, south, east, or west. It faces southwest, kind of towards the winter solstice sunset, just like the ones in Ireland. They face southwest. And next to its east-west chamber, and it looked like the ones I saw in France called galley graves or gallery graves. They're in northwest yeah. Ireland. And they're also in Holland. They call them a giant's bed. And Katja is from Holland. She She's originally, I mentioned that earlier in the show, and she actually, when I mentioned, she goes, oh, yeah, they're, uh, they, they're, they're called the giant's bed, the Hudenbidden, I think. And when one of the authors that's been doing stories about us for a number of years, he's a friend of Scott Walters, was in Holland to write another book doing research. He was at one of the Hudenbins, the Giants Bend. I said, and I was talking to him, you know, on Messenger as he was there. And I said, what's the orientation? He goes, it's true east and west. And they run 20 to 60 feet over there, just like our structure does. And they're always true yeah. east and west. And they have either big slabs on their sides called orthostats or boulders stood up. But when you look at the pictures, it's like, my God, it looks like our chamber. And they were used as tombs over there, they think. I guess there's some evidence from remains. By the right. way, Goodwin found some bones on the main site. They were on, they oh, were uh, kept in, yeah, they were found on the main site and they were sent to the Smithsonian uh, by a teacher back in 1968. And Dr. Lucy Huygen from the Smithsonian analyzed them. And she said uh, there were markings on them and the markings were made with a and she identified as human and there were markings on him while the person was alive. And there were three bones. And she said also the material is much denser than she would have expected for a human being. Now they were out of the ground for 30 years by 1968. Cause Gooden found them in the late thirties. You couldn't do radiocarbon dating that did come along to 1950 and they were contaminated by being in the elements. You know, you have to put them in aluminum right. foil, send them to a lab. Well, my thought now, I have a friend, L.A. Mazzulli, who's doing the Paraka skulls down in South America, uh, is to do DNA testing on them. And we have them on display in our museum. And the last thing by Dr. Lucy Huygen in 1968, she goes, at the bottom of the hook, he goes, my feeling is that these are human bones. And they were found on the oh, main okay. site. So, See, I was not aware of that. I, you know, like I said, I have been, it's been a while, so... Yeah, I didn't think they found any, any. I mean, especially where, you know, you supposedly have the sacrificial altar, you would think you would find some type of human remains buried somewhere. Yeah, the soil does eat them up pretty quick. You know, our archaeologist, she was a president of the New Hampshire Archaeological Society, started with us in 1989, the year Kelsey, my son was born, and she's just retired recently. You know, she's in her 80s now, and she said most bones in New England uh, will dissolve back into the soil because of the acidity in the soil within a few hundred years. But they do, I get the publications and occasionally they do find bones in New Hampshire that are a few thousand years old because of maybe they're found in clay or peat or something that preserves them. But generally they do kind of uh, dissolve or, you know, they decompose. But in the watch house back in Goodwin's time, they found a bone with a drill hole in it and also a flat piece of stone about an inch tall shaped kind of almost triangular shape. We think that they were pendants and they were found in the watch house. So that makes it interesting. And a couple other bones were looked at by Dr. Lucy Huygen, not that bone in the stone pendant, but 
the other bones were looked at, and she said, I think he's a bison, bison, bison. So she showed him to her male colleague who was a little bit more, you know, uh, educated or trained or whatever in, the, in, that, in, in that. And he looked at him. He goes, oh, yeah, those are um, bison. She goes, yeah, but they're found in New Hampshire. He goes, well, the woodland bison probably were there in the past, you know. So we had what looks like buffalo bones found by the watch house, too. So oh, that structure is wow, kind of interesting. Unusual. It's a multifunction structure. I think that structure by itself is probably, besides the oracle chamber, that structure is amazing, you know, because it might be part of a, a serpent. It might be a womb with the sunlight going in, just like the Newport Tower has an egg shape. I don't know if you're familiar with the Newport Tower. Oh, yeah, definitely. And it illuminates. Scott Walters did a lot on that, uh, along with some other people, too. And they found that on the winter solstice, the sunlight does go in and it illuminates. They'll be watching that on the same day we're watching ours. It also is a uh, mayday alignment, too, Beltane, which we have that cross-quarter day, too. That same egg is illuminated. It looks like our stone a little bit in the illumination. At Newport Tower, there's a square opening, and the sunlight will go into it on those two days, and it kind of illuminates the, uh, you know, Beltane, there's two different directions, of course, between, you know, the winter solstice and where the sun is in the in the May Day, you know, but uh, it's another opening, I guess. But it's kind of cool. When I got photographs of that, I'm like, wow, that looks like what we have going on. And I've been to Newgrange where the sunlight goes in on the winter solstice and the sunrise. Uh, the people will be there. It's a lottery and uh, it's 65 foot tunnel and the back's cruciform shape. And the sunlight will go right into the back of that chamber uh, next Wednesday if it's clear skies over there, too. So there seems oh, to be a lot cool. of that going around the world, you know? Yeah, yeah I, have to, I have to tell you, uh, I don't know if you remember this, but uh, when Don worked there and we did, we actually did a, a, a show for WNDS TV. And oh, yeah, uh, yeah mm -hmm. and one of the things Don told the story about the two little old ladies who uh, went to visit you guys and then went home and they came back the next day with a rock. <laughs> Don and says, here, take this back. And they said that they had taken, <laughs> taken the rock and they had had it in their, in their living room and a <laughs> nine foot Indian appeared for them. So they, they were oh. quite <laughs> Oh, wow. That, that does bring back memories from that. I do remember that now. That is so, wow, that's wild. That's what you get. That's what you get for messing around with Native Americans. Yeah, don't mess with our place, you know. Right. Don't mess with our rocks. You know, <laughs> you know hey, I, will say, I will say that, Rhonda, just a couple of years ago, we got a ma somebody mailed in in an envelope through the U.S. Postal Service. They mailed us back some pottery that was found at the glacial cliff shelter because we know there's pottery oh. we have it on display 25 they actually stole it during the excavation oh, pocketed it back wow. in 1958 we finally got it back like 60 years later you know oh. almost 60 years later oh, it was a couple of years ago yeah. yeah i think some bad juju happened with i don't know you know maybe some bad luck or something whatever it's they call that a lot that, of know? it for that amount of time you know i know <laughs> they finally gave up and sent it back and maybe things are good now we're going to wrap it up anyways but you know like you know, it may be the same thing as uh in hawaii with Haley's revenge if you take anything for hawaii you're supposed to leave bad things happen from you as well so anyways yeah. we do have to yeah. wrap it up uh dennis uh we've been this is you're listening to ghost chronicles next generation with ron and our special guest has been dennis stone of america stonehenge go check him out on the web uh, it's got it's a cool place. If you haven't gone, uh, you don't want to go out in the winter, go in the summertime. It's great. Great place. So, Dennis, thank you so much for joining us. Yes. So interesting. Well, thank you so much. And I hope you both can come up and visit. Thank you. Thank you so uh, much for uh, a wonderful radio show. <laughs> thank you, Dennis. So you're uh, welcome. Yeah.
Today's show is brought to you by Circles of Wisdom uh, and our very good friends on Ghost Chronicles Radio on Patreon. Uh, become a member and join. Uh, and thank you very much. And everybody, good night. God bless and have a Merry Christmas. Good night, everybody. Merry Christmas. to ghosties, long-leggedy beasties, and things that go bump in the night. Deliver us, good Lord.